The Narcissism of Privacy While he, Narcissus, is drinking, he beholds himself reflected in the mirrored pool and loves. Loves an imagined body which contains no substance, for he deems the mirrored shade a thing of life to love. But why, O oh foolish boy, so vainly catching at this flitting form? Avert your gaze, and you will lose your love, for this that holds your eyes is nothing save the image of yourself reflected back to you. It comes and waits with you. It has no life. It will depart if you will only go. Ovid, The Metamorphoses December 2011 if this stretch of Facebook life seems chaotic in its random divagations, that's because it was random and unpredictable. Life as a Facebook product manager was less being a lieutenant in some stolid industry juggernaut and more being buffeted by constant external and internal forces. The external forces were the ever-present machinations of Google, the general temperature of the advertising world with respect to Facebook's marketing offerings, and the fortunes of Facebook's social media vision, for example, were teenagers still using it. The internal forces were the fluctuations in your standing in the impromptu hierarchy of people and products inside Gokulland, as well as the fate of the products you managed and nursed to success, or at least to quick failure. Particularly on my beat, we were constantly sprinting half-blind through a minefield of potential legal problems and encouraged to do so as the risky cost of innovation. For my entire career at Facebook, I was embroiled in a rolling debate with the Facebook privacy and legal teams about what we could and couldn't get away with, chiseling away at their legal trepidation and trying to find some legal rubric that would forgive, or at least defensively excuse, our next depredation with user data. One day, though, and with little prompting on our part, that all came to one of those do-or-die confrontations of which Facebook had many in its bustling drive toward Internet domination. One of the oddities of Wall Street trading desk life is the rapid recalibration of monetary value. Everything, whether profit or risk, is measured in units of millions of dollars, commonly called a buck. We lost ten bucks on that grease trade. Johnny Dickhead's bonus this year was two bucks. A sum that's twenty times the median U.S. family income becomes the basic unit of account, beyond which, if you're being punctilious, you can use decimals. Facebook enjoyed a similar embarrassment of riches, but in users, not dollars. I never heard the use of any bundling term like buck, but sums of millions of users were splashed around between products and test groups like chips at a $1 and $2 poker table. What would have been an important user milestone for any consumer startup became the most minimal unit of account inside Facebook. As a geographic tangent, New Zealand was commonly used as a testbed for new user-facing products. It was perfect due to its English language usage, its relative isolation in terms of the social graph, that is, most friend links were internal to the country, and, frankly, its lack of newsworthiness, so any gossip or reporting of new Facebook features ran a low risk of leaking back to the real target markets of the United States and Europe. Aotearoa is the original Maori word for New Zealand, which roughly translated means Facebook test set. Thus does that verdant island nation, graced with stunning fjords and clear alpine lakes, sample whatever random product dwiddle a 23-year-old Facebook engineer in Menlo Park dreams up. Of course, in the ads world, matters were rather different. 
As we've discussed previously, all users are certainly not created equal from the monetization perspective. Facebook made the vast majority of its revenue in the United States and Europe. Other countries represented but a trickle. Immature advertising markets, the embryonic state of their e-commerce infrastructure, and their lower general wealth meant the impact of new optimization tricks or targeting data on those countries was minimal. And so the ads team would slice off tranches of the FB user base in rich ads markets and dose them with different versions of the ad system to measure the effect of a new feature, as you would test subjects in a clinical drug trial. Footnote. This sort of split testing, known as A-B testing, is common for any internet app or website. In a careful and conscientious company, it's how any sort of change is tested, either for user engagement or for things like server load due to a code change. End footnote. The performance metrics of interest included click-through rates, which are a coarse measure of user interest. More convincing is the actual downstream monetization resulting from someone clicking through and buying something, assuming Facebook got the conversion data, which it often didn't, given that Facebook didn't have a conversion tracking system. Also important, and not related to money at all, was overall usage. As you didn't want to burn out users with excessive or distracting ads, monetization and usage often existed in a zero-sum trade-off that was difficult to juggle. After enough time had passed, all these metrics, click-through, monetization, usage, and so forth, would then be compared between test and normal sets. The bigger the sliver used in the test set, the less time you had to wait as the data velocity was higher. Then the product tweak would be declared a success or failure and either expanded to 100% of the user base, reworked, or abandoned. Facebook ads was spinning so many product plates at once, there was always a decent chunk of the user base unwittingly serving as test subjects, even if each individual test was small. There was ongoing concern that so much experimentation might adversely affect Facebook's top-line revenue by damaging the user experience somehow. Therefore, the fraction of the user base that could be tested would every so often be capped. When that happened, the engineers would horse trade among themselves parts of the user base to test their new changes. It was quantified in terms of percentages, of course, but if you translated those percentages into numbers, you'd realize the scale of the haggling. Look, I'll give you my Belgium, but I need a Czech Republic or maybe a Guatemala in return. Nah, not good enough, man. I need at least a Malaysia to get an answer by tomorrow. They wouldn't literally say this, to be clear, nor were they haggling over specific countries, merely their population magnitudes in terms of percent of users. But that was the scale involved in the ordinary day-to-day -day testing of even the most trivial feature, like expanding the size of the image in an ad by five pixels. In the midst of all this monkeying around on the part of the ads team, I was sucked into my first serious privacy kerfuffle. Ireland was the official European Union regulator of Facebook data and privacy policies, and its data protection agency, DPA, was conducting a thorough audit of Facebook's ads targeting. As part of my role as shit umbrella product manager for ads targeting, I had the unwelcome duty to be in on every call and meeting with some guy named Gary, who was evidently the one-man data protection office there. How the land of suffocating Catholicism and potato famines came to be the regulator of the biggest accumulation of personal data since DNA is a curious story. Ireland, following its rise as the Celtic Tiger in the mid-aughts and subsequent property crash, 
actively encouraged American companies to choose Dublin as their European base. Ireland offered tax incentives. The corporate tax rate was very low. An educated and desperate-for-work talent pool and a rational legal framework. The net result was that the waterfront docks east of Dublin became colonized by U.S. tech companies like Facebook, Google, and Airbnb, each running mostly its sales and operations teams out of gleaming new high-rise offices. Facebook occupied several floors, each decorated with a European flag marking the spot where that country's sales and ops team lived. The joke was that the Facebook Dublin office was the Noah's Ark of the EU. If continental Europe was consumed in some cataclysm, it could be repopulated with the breeding pairs located under each flag in the office. And yes, we had breeding pairs, as the office's gender ratio was true to life, unlike that at the corporate mothership, which was a never-ending sausage party. Given that Facebook was an Irish entity within the EU, the deal with the Europeans was that it would be mostly up to the Irish to police that ever-present bugbear of underworked EU bureaucrats, our data and privacy policy. Despite the fact that the entire continent was unable to itself produce even a single consumer Internet company of global scope, Europe did reserve the right to control how those American companies did business. So the Irish, 4.5 million people who couldn't even fill a Facebook test set, had us by the databases, and we needed to placate them. In an unusual move, Ireland and Facebook decided to publish the results of the audit, so you're free to read the conclusions of the official report. The net of it was that certain types of targeting that FB had toyed with, though not fully deployed, had to be discontinued by the end of the agreed audit period, which was late December. We had a couple of weeks to sort it all out and make sure we were on the right side of the Irish. Given the impenetrable code and data sprawl, I asked one of the grandfathers of ads, Rong Yan, who had been at Facebook all of two years, if we were engaged in any of the type of targeting we had agreed to discontinue. Rong, whose word was law about how the ad system worked, categorically denied we were actively doing so, saying we had at most experimented with it in the past. Satisfied, I had assured the Irish and the senior ads team there was no need to worry about that point in the deal. Here's the great lesson for you, aspiring product manager. The principal reason for you to be technical is not to help technically design the system under development. If you're doing that, then you're PMing wrong. No, you're technical so you can tell when engineers are bullshitting you, which will be often. At times it's accidental, as it was with wrong, due to either miscommunication, bad memory, or wishful thinking. Engineers are as inclined to it as anybody. Sometimes it's more stealthy, their passive-aggressive way to disagree with the product direction. That'll eat up all our servers, or laziness. It's impossible to build that. The PM is there to give a sniff test to any such product-killing assertion. The final day of the Irish data agreement dawned, by which time Facebook had agreed to implement all necessary changes, and I was fairly pleased at having finally done my part to settle the Facebook corporate colostomy we'd undergone. A little paranoid itch, almost like an extrasensory tingling doubt, made me wonder if we had really covered all the bases, despite the number of engineering conversations that had transpired. After all, I had stuck my neck out to assure both the Irish Data Authority and Facebook management that the targeting team was completely in compliance with our binding framework, and they had accepted my word. That tingle growing, I opened up a terminal window, the basic command line screen, Imagine what you've seen in more than one computer hacker movie. 
That was still how you accessed many remote Facebook servers. I knew enough about how the back-end ad system worked to log in and poke around the various machines. The targeting tables defined what targeting segments the Facebook ad system used and formed the logical glue connecting the eyeballs to the buckets of money. If the database tables underlying the targeting logic were inconsistent, for example, certain table rows were missing when they shouldn't have been, ads targeting would cease to function and ads would no longer be shown with every Facebook page. Note. The existence of this targeting was not at issue. Facebook had been completely transparent with the Irish, merely its persistence beyond the agreed-upon cutoff date and time, which at this point was in a couple of hours, assuming I had my time zones right. On this otherwise sleepy Christmas Eve day, 2011, the new ads team area, fresh from our move from the dingy California Avenue building, more on that later, was absolutely empty, except for one engineer, Hong Gu. Hong Gu was the best-dressed man at Facebook, the aesthetic counterpoint to the schlubby hoodie-and-jeans uniform that reigned at the company, even among women. With his fitted blazers and flamboyant collared shirts, he reminded me of the hero in a Hong Kong action film. I imagined him decimating a room full of goons with well-placed roundhouse kicks, saving the girl and the briefcase with the secret documents, then driving out in a Ferrari to Facebook, where he sat in front of a computer and made the ad system work. Hey, Kong, you mind looking over my shoulder for a second and making sure I don't do something stupid? It's kind of important. It was a simple command to execute. Routine, really, if it wasn't for the fact it was on a live production database and formed the heart of a $2 billion in spend. And the fact I hadn't written an SQL write command in a good couple of years. Fuck this up, and it would be a SEV1, a severity level 1 bug meaning whoever was on call would be roused from whatever bed, toilet, vacation beach, or drunken stupor they found themselves in, and asked to scramble and save the FB ship. You're a product manager. All of the responsibility, none of the power. Fix it. I typed update table set, and so on, nuking every possible piece of forbidden targeting. That look good, Hong? Hong peered at my command line through his designer glasses. Yeah, looks good. Deep breath. Raise a prayer to the Virgin Mary of Altar, Our Lady of the My SQL Commands. Enter. The lights flickered in the ad space. Actually, no, they didn't. But my heart did skip a beat. A few minutes passed. A quick look at the real-time dashboards revealed that all was right with the world. We hadn't just short-circuited the Facebook money machine. Great, said Hong, and he went back to his desk. Fuck me, and the Irish, and the Irish Data Protection Commissioner. I closed my laptop and left Hong to hold down the fort. Time for a beer at Rose and Crown. Facebook is showing me an ad for X, and what do I care about that? Look how bad their ads targeting is. Or, Facebook just showed me an ad for nail polish, and I had my nails done yesterday and texted my friend about it. Are they reading my texts, or are they looking at satellite photos and tracking me? How many times have you heard some variant of these questions? The reality is that Facebook isn't showing you anything. Here's what people don't understand about advertising. Facebook is simply a routing system, almost like an old-time telephone exchange that delivers a message for money. The address on that message can be approximate, for example, males aged 35 in Ohio. Or it can be specific, for example, the person who just shopped for a specific pair of shoes on Zappos. But either way, Facebook didn't make the match of user and message, and at most decides secondary things like how often that ad is seen in general, 
or which of the two ads addressed to you is seen that particular instant. In this sense, ads on Facebook are no different from phone calls or emails. We receive commercial versions of both in the form of spam and telemarketing calls. And yet, when we get a penis enlargement email, nobody blames Google for providing Gmail, does he? Nor do you blame AT&T for the marketing call that distracted you from Game of Thrones. The only difference is that while people commonly make phone calls and write emails, few, if any, people address and post an ad. Like infants who haven't learned object permanence yet, the Facebook whiners see an ad, the Facebook logo, and assume it's all connected. Make the ad go away, and they don't even think about it. Of course, what they should really be thinking about is how that ad got addressed, and what the advertiser, and not Facebook, knows about them. Facebook is actually the least of their worries, and it's about the only dog in the fight that ultimately cares about the user. Unsurprisingly, those who kvetch the most about irrelevant ads are also the same bellyachers who complain when ads are too good and seem creepy. No doubt, the slightly technically savvy among them are also running ad-blocking software and advocate against the increased data collection that would improve ads and make them more relevant. If they were to publish content themselves or work in the business of delivering all of humanity's digitized social life 24-7 all over the world, they'd realize there's a human cost to that blue-framed browser tab, and it most certainly is not free. Ad-blocking is tantamount to theft, or at the very least running a toll booth without paying. Oh, and spare me your claims that you'd be willing to pay for Facebook instead of seeing ads. It's not even clear what Facebook should charge you. The whole point of the ad auction and the dynamic marketplace for your attention is figuring that out. Setting a usage fee would be like IBM declaring it's going to pick an individual price for every investor who wants to buy a share, rather than leaving the price discovery to the open market of a stock exchange. Advertising is the only reliable business model that's worked for all but a handful of publishers, and those only among the elite content-producing ranks of The Economist and The Wall Street Journal who manage to charge their users. If you want to interact with the world via the Internet, then deal with ads. Privacy is to Facebook as nuclear weapons are to Iran. This constant cloud overhead, obsessed over by outsiders, even if poorly understood, and the starting point of pretty much any conversation with an outside player. As Facebook's use of your data for money-making purposes appeared to have been a concern of every busybody nonprofit activist and government bureaucrat, this meant a good quarter of my time was spent thinking about legal issues and strategizing with Facebook's privacy team. If a product changes the way Facebook uses data, and if, as a product manager, you're not pushing the boundaries of data usage, you're not doing your job, then you'll likely be gated by Facebook's data policy. Data policy changes are an orchestrated production on the order of the Academy Awards and not to be taken lightly. The fact that a billion users have never even read the user agreement they've consented to is immaterial. The world's lawyers certainly have, and that's the real intended audience of that document. Not that this mattered much. Here was the reality. There were almost no legal precedents covering any of this newfangled data privacy stuff, and that juridical gap was filled by self-serving standards organizations that nominally imposed a rational order, but in reality only served some agenda. Thus, as with product itself, Facebook and every major ads player that had the leverage to define its terms, for example, Google, Apple, were making it up as they went along. Think that's nuts? Get this. 
Thanks to a privacy brouhaha in 2009, Zuck had pledged that any future changes to the data policy would be voted, voted on by users. So when we gave up trying to squeeze money from the rock of Facebook-only data and expanded radically the usage of data by the ads team, it was necessary to hold a referendum. Yes, really, digital democracy, citizens of Facebook land. And so in late 2011, Facebook held an election. Among the measures up for voting was abolishing elections forever. Democracy could opt to commit suicide. Asking people about changes to data policy is like asking about changes to the IRS tax code. The policy in question is a big, hairy beast nobody really understands. And by default, people want to keep the status quo rather than think about some uncertain future change. Fortunately for Facebook, one of the original stipulations in the offer of democracy stated that 30% of the user base had to participate in order for the result to be binding. By 2011, Facebook's user base was over a billion, which meant about 300 million people, almost three times the number of voters in the most recent U.S. presidential election, needed to participate. The chances were slim, but who knew? If some cat video could go viral, or those meaningless declarations about owning your data that seemed to sweep across Facebook every year like the flu, then maybe voting could too. We needn't have worried. The adoption of the new policy lost by a landslide. 90% of voters were against the new data policy that Facebook needed to survive. But almost nobody voted, not even close to 30% of users. As such, the voting result was taken under advisement, by which we mean ignored. And be grateful we did. Facebook would be in trouble right now otherwise, as the company-saving products that launched later would have been impossible under the old data policy. Despite all this drama, despite getting every legal detail correct, there was still the public relations heat around privacy to deal with, usually of the most obtuse variety. Let me give you an example, called from early FB memory. I would constantly get pings from the harried Facebook PR team about targeting functionality after the Los Angeles Times or whoever asked them about our targeting abilities. The product manager was always the last hop on the buck-passing chain, so deal with it, PM. The story usually ran as follows. The journalist, or one of her sources, had seen ads for the San Francisco 49ers after her husband's cousin's college roommate posted a photo of himself in a 49ers jersey. Were we using uploaded photos in our ads targeting? This was like being accused of fathering Scarlett Johansson's love child. I wish I could even reasonably be suspected of pulling that off. Think about it for a moment. Picking out a football jersey on some crappy cell phone photo and determining the accurate, associated, and commercially interesting topic, for example, the 49ers, and assigning it to the right member of your family social tree who shares that interest, based on reams of random drivel you've shared on Facebook, would be an image recognition and machine learning feat on the order of the moon landing. Facebook ads targeting is so simple, this was a preposterous thought, and no number of denials kept the journalists with their aha anecdotes from pressing their case. The real answer, of course, was that the 49ers were playing that weekend, explaining both the jersey wearing by the cousin and the fact the 49ers agency was running a widely targeted marketing campaign. The major misunderstanding here is that people seem to think that data that would embarrass them or pain them to reveal or would otherwise just be creepy to imagine in someone else's hands possesses commercial value. Look, 
Facebook could have a video of you fornicating wildly with a frisky German shepherd with your social security number and bank details written in lipstick on the dog's back while some deep voice in the background read out your deepest, darkest secrets from childhood and adolescence. And you know what? No advertiser would give a shit. They would, however, love to know what movie you saw on Netflix last night, what's in your Amazon shopping cart, every item you scrutinized when you last visited Best Buy, and how long it's been since you bought a car, and which car. They also want to know what mobile devices and browsers you use, and every website you visit, so they can serve and track media on each aforementioned device. Almost nothing of what you share on Facebook, sweet nothings to your mistress, photos of you passed out on a couch, your secret brownie recipe, is worth anything in commercial terms. So even assuming perfectly evil behavior on Facebook's part, the company would have no use for it. Facebook doesn't sell your data, it buys it. It does this by providing services to advertisers that incentivize them to let Facebook ingest the data you've generated outside Facebook. In fact, as we'll soon see, Facebook is one of the most jealous guardians of user data known to man. It is a black hole of data that can never leave. All Facebook's technology is designed thusly, and that will never change. If you stop for a moment and realize how suicidally stupid it would be for Facebook to hand over its data on users to anyone for any amount of money, you'll realize how tired that Facebook sells your data meme is. Are we savages or what? He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. Samuel Johnson September 15, 2011 like hermit crabs, successful companies outgrow a series of larger and larger shells. By late 2011, the 1601 California Avenue location was feeling tight. People were packed in nut-to-butt in the ads area, and the whole building was looking a bit run down. This was typical of any busy tech company too focused on the metrics that mattered to bother with what appeared to be the carpet stains from a double homicide lingering in a corner, and was really hastily cleaned happy hour vomit. The conference room stunk of sweat from too many people sleeping in them, or something, and the cafe was overcrowded like a soup kitchen. The Facebook nomenclatura decided that we should move, and the new Jerusalem of Facebook was to be the abandoned remains of that tech-has-been Sun Microsystems. Given the sad state of that campus, the company would have to move in stages, with the engineering teams arriving last. When it was finally our turn, of course, nobody had actually prepared for the move, despite the email we'd all gotten weeks before from the facilities team that was managing the pilgrimage. Come the final moment, around 4.30 p.m., we were to be out of the building by 5 o'clock. All hell broke loose. People started stuffing their accumulated detritus into cardboard boxes. First, it was all the shit on their desks. If you lived at Facebook, you kept lots of books, the odd girlfriend photo, Stuffed animals of indeterminate origin, corporate swag like mugs or mouse pads accumulated from sales conferences, maybe random stuff you'd made in off-site corporate team-building events. Then it was the team toys like skateboards and Nerf guns. Then it was the area decorations that seemed to sprout like moss around any Facebook product team. Posters from the Analog Research Laboratory. Gag props like a plywood altar to your engineering manager. Yes, really. Or the local speakeasy liquor cabinet. Then suddenly it was kind of everything, and it wasn't just going into moving boxes. People were prying the corporate artwork off the walls, snagging the conference room name tags, 
and stuffing it all into laptop bags, garbage bags, whatever else they were planning to haul home. Things got so out of control that at one point Eileen Curitan, the one admin for ads, back when there was one for the whole team rather than one per executive, stood up and in her best attempt at a marine drill sergeant voice, started bellowing at the rampaging vandals to put down all the shit they were hauling off. Her bellows went unheeded. Within the span of a quarter hour, the office had been picked clean. Having been in a few violent demonstrations and riots, thanks to time spent studying in Basque Country in the late 90s, I couldn't quite say this was slouching toward the real car-burning, rubber-bullets-flying mayhem of legit group violence, but it was about as close as American corporate culture surely got in its early 21st century dotage. Then an idea occurred. There was one series of conference rooms close to Zuck and the High Command whose names were supposedly inspired by the series of countries that had tipped to Facebook usage during the time the building was occupied, including the Madra Patria of the misbegotten Hispanic race, the original homeland of my people. Wouldn't the area around the presidential palace fall last to the revolutionary violence? Perhaps it was still there. I threaded my way through the pillaging mayhem and ran into Mick Johnson, the original YC comrade who had kicked off my Facebook story with his official intro and unofficial advice, who was wearing a smile and carrying Australia in his hands. Rushing down the halls to the cluster of conference rooms in question, I found hastily detached sticky tape on one door after another. Almost all of the plaques were gone, but not the one I wanted. Whipping out the rigging knife I always carried, I pried against the drywall, levering the sign off. Tucking it into the front of my pants and under my Facebook fleece like a shoplifter, I made my way back to ads just under Aileen's furious radar. When the riot finally quieted down as everyone abandoned the building, I headed back to the boat and installed Spain, complete with textured braille, along the series of portholes on the starboard side. Its bright yellow corporate sterility and sans-serif font offset the warm, rich browns of mahogany and cedar. All that matters in the end is what we take away from an experience, even if pried off the wall with a weathered rigging knife. For whatever reason, Facebook always had a fascination with graffiti office art. Early on, Sean Parker, an early Svengali at Facebook who had been Zuck's advisor and temporary CEO and who was memorably played by Justin Timberlake in The Social Network, had asked a noted muralist, David Cho, to paint sexually-themed murals at the original Facebook offices in downtown Palo Alto. They were reputedly somewhat toned down in the final implementation. Now, years later, the same artist would be hired to decorate the bare expanses of white drywall in the new campus's reception and meeting areas, in part, I imagine, as a remedy to the fiasco that was about to take place. With no warning, a few weeks after we had settled into the new digs, Zuck announced that we ourselves would be decorating the inside of our newly conquered corporate campus. Certainly the campus needed a bit of personalization. The main courtyard was still under construction, and the halls and walls gleamed with rapidly applied paint. Things had that just-moved-in feeling. Despite its flaws, the old office had felt lived in and homey, like an old beaten-down couch you can't bring yourself to toss. The indisputable upgrade in office quality, the newness and poshness of it all, threatened to congeal into corporate sterility. Zuck informed us that we'd be given all the spray cans, brushes, and paints we wanted and be allowed to stake out any part of the campus as our own and create art. Given our little performance of mob violence during the moving out step, this was a considerable leap of faith. 
The appointed day arrived, and a Home Depot's worth of paints and supplies were drop-shipped into the public areas of every building. The time was early evening when people were switching gears from the meetings and coatings of the day and pondering going either to the gym or to the cafes for dinner. With nothing in the way of direction other than Zuck's mandate to produce art, people started arming themselves with a stockpile of paints and going at it. Of course, pandemonium ensued. Unskilled geeks confronted with the graffiti canvas of an unblemished wall for the first time started sketching pathetic stick figures in the halls with large thought bubbles featuring corny jokes about Facebook culture. People drew crude flowers or animal figures that only the parent of the three-year-old who drew them could ever think beautiful. Slogans appeared at a top-of-urinal level of graffiti intelligence in random places. An older guy, no doubt some engineering manager with a lengthy LinkedIn CV and a mortgaged house in San Mateo, was leading his child by the hand while aforementioned child sprayed a continuous red line down the still virgin white hallway, Hansel and Gretel leaving a trail of breadcrumbs. An ambitious engineer set up shop in the heavily trafficked public square between what was then ads and growth and one of the busiest thoroughfares. Using a printout of a comic book scene in hand as guide, he started sketching a Superman emerging fist-first from a jumble of figures and shapes. Like a good muralist, he was busily engaged with the initial line sketch, which he'd have time only to partially fill with color before he abruptly departed. It resembled Jesus in Michelangelo's Last Judgment, a twisted shape flinging the universe around him. Some teams kicked into product development mode, dreaming up artistic visions around some central theme. The product manager handled logistical matters like masking tape, marking pens, and stencils, and the engineers did the actual work. It was a microcosm of Facebook product development itself. One of these depicted a huge unicorn head over a complicated, tessellated pattern that looked algorithmically generated. These were about the only efforts that could even remotely be titled art. This mayhem lasted for a good two days. That weekend, Zuck sent another two-all email or maybe it was posted in the general Facebook internal group to which everyone belonged. The gist being, I trusted you to create art, and what you fuckers did was vandalize the place. This was, of course, true. The place looked like an alleyway in the mission now, not the offices of the world's most promising tech startup. Worse, the mission actually had some epic mural art. Facebook's art was comparable to that inside a blasted-out favela. By his own report, Zuck had spent two days walking the entire FB campus, marking everything that was to be taken down. Indeed, come Monday, there was a thick band of blue masking tape marking every badly conceived attempt or bit of joyful vandalism. Zuck must have gone through ten rolls of the stuff. Immediately, Roddy Lindsay, one of the Facebook old-timers and keepers of the corporate culture, created a comment macro inside the code review system. The code review tool is how a Facebook engineer sees the world and does 90% of his work, submitting his code for consideration to the engineering team, where it is hotly debated, almost as if it were an online forum. The macros are geek emoticons, a witty or instructive image or gif often reminiscent of kitschy internet memes. There are hundreds of them, and they are like a rebus of engineering commentary, either encouraging someone to boldly ship a new feature or pejoratively insulting some code writer's ability. At the time, typing blue tape produced an image of a piece of blue masking tape on a wall, indicating that a piece of code should be removed for the sake of aesthetics and or sanity. 
This was Facebook culture for you. Lots of bold, unconventional experiments, mostly failures, with some notable successes. An immediate course correction to prune the failure, and then internalizing the experience via the culture. The crab murals and blue tape were as core to Facebook as the like button and Beacon. Footnote. Beacon was the emblematic Facebook product fiasco. Launched in 2007, before online oversharing was commonplace, Beacon posted your web browsing activity to your feed. The off-sited Beacon disaster was a real-life guy shopping for an engagement ring and the putative fiancé finding out about his imminent proposal via Facebook. Awkward. Beacon resulted in a class-action suit and was soon officially shut down. On the old campus, Facebook had a series of conference rooms named after ill-conceived disasters, land war in Southeast Asia, knife to a gunfight, and Beacon. End footnote. O oh, death. A glorious moment, but I have a dread foreboding that someday the same doom will be pronounced on my own country. It would be difficult to mention an utterance more statesmanlike and more profound. For at the moment of our greatest triumph and of disaster to our enemies, to reflect on our own situation and on the possible reversal of circumstances, and generally to bear in mind at the season of success the mutability of fortune, is like a great and perfect man, a man in short worthy to be remembered. Polybius, Histories January 2012 as mentioned, our new freshly defaced campus had been formerly occupied by a bygone tech juggernaut, Sun Microsystems. It's ancient history now, but Sun once made these servers that powered the Internet. Whether it was the fast and expensive machines that sat in co-location facilities around the world serving up the web, or powerful machines that sat on the desks of such high-end users as scientists or engineers, each with a full suite of development tools to produce yet more Internet technology. Sun was synonymous with the tech boom of the early 2000s. Yet it got complacent, and when Linux, running on commodity hardware, became the infrastructure of choice for most smart tech companies, including Google, Sun did nothing to stem the tide that led to its extinction. When we moved into Menlo Park, there were Sun logos on lots of conference room doors and public spaces. Rather than remove them all, Zuck ordered that a few of them remain. Like corporate memento mori, they were to remind employees that Facebook could also go the way of extinction and be reduced one day to logos and swag. The biggest such fossil was to be found behind the Facebook sign with its enormous like button, featuring the ubiquitous blue upraised thumb host to an almost 24-7 cluster of selfie-taking tourists. On the back of Facebook's only publicly-facing sign, and as big as a billiard table, was the logo that used to represent the sleek new digital future. It was as tattered and flaking as some historical artifact. When Facebook arrived, instead of replacing the original sign, management had simply flipped it around and intentionally neglected to paint or cover the back. It read Sun Microsystems, along with the quadrangular logo made of S-figures that used to appear at the top of every web page you loaded. This too shall pass. What befell Sun could befall us too, so move fast and break things, Zuck was saying by implication. Perhaps even the mighty Facebook like button would one day be looked upon like the inscription on the fragment of Ozymandias's statue and Shelley's rumination on the transience of human ambition. An arrogant spasm of striving, forgotten and abandoned. 
Every morning I bicycled the six miles from my sailboat docked in Redwood City to the new campus, which sat on an artificial spit of land poking into the tidal marshes that formed the San Francisco Bay's boggy southern tip. This wasn't as picturesque as it may sound. It was two miles of dusty peddling next to the concrete quarries alongside the port of Redwood City, two miles of getting buzzed by trucks through a neglected waterfront neighborhood, and then, finally, two miles of preserved marshlands. If the algae were blooming, it smelled like a camp toilet. Hang the bicycle on the always jammed racks inside the card-activated main door and shower time. The bathrooms were undersized for Facebook's population, and there were no actual locker rooms. As such, the hardcore cyclists hung their ridiculous spandex nuthuggers on the towel racks, intentionally inside out to air the sweaty crotches. Blech. My sailboat living situation was unusual. The company was made up of about half suburban stiffs, older, married, children, who lived on the peninsula, in bedroom communities like Menlo Park or Mountain View, depending on how early they had joined and how wealthy they were. The other half, young, hipster, fresh out of school, lived in the trendy and expensive parts of San Francisco. The latter were trucked in on company buses. That's right, Facebook ran a pool of shuttles that carted people either the 30 miles from SF to Menlo Park or from downtown Palo Alto. Footnote. Things have since gotten even more serious. Facebook has a navy now. There's a Facebook boat that services increasingly popular Oakland. It rips through wind and wave from Alameda in the East Bay to the marina just north of Facebook where I kept my boat, where another shuttle to campus waits. The official Facebook airline flying in employees from L.A. or Seattle can't be far behind. End footnote. These buses were a metaphor for what was happening in the Bay Area, and I'd venture the entire economy, a symbolism not lost on the anti-techie protesters, given their penchant for smashing the bus's windows occasionally. One set of people got one set of goods and services, and the ones with tech company IDs clipped into their belts got very much another. Picture the scene, Valley Traveler. 24th Street and Valencia in the Mission District, Hipsterville now, but historically a poor Mexican neighborhood. White charter buses, studiously unmarked by logos, compete for bus stop space with lurching ramshackle SF Muni buses. One fleet of buses is for the Alpha Plus Plus SF residents and features comfortable seats and Wi-Fi. The other is for the proles and features at least one incontinent homeless man raving deliriously next to the only open seat. Careful, though. Given there are at least three companies hosting corporate shuttles, you have to make sure you get on the right one. Easier said than done, given the lack of signage. Get on the wrong one, and you'll find yourself headed to Google or Genetech instead. Of course, this did happen, and frequently. When infiltrated, someone would post on the Facebook commute group indicating there was a Google spy on the bus, and to keep conversations down and screens hidden. What happened to those spies? I'm not quite sure. I wouldn't be surprised if HR kept recruiters on board, like the FAA air marshals on international flights, in order to snap them up as new hires the moment the doors closed. Footnote. This joke is truer than you may think. I was nearly one of those confused busgoers once. Getting off the Caltrain at the Palo Alto station from where Facebook and a bunch of tech companies ran private buses, I saw a passenger sitting with a Facebook logoed bag, the shuttle doors rapidly closing. I darted for it and made it. Something about the smell of it set me off, and I asked, This is the Facebook shuttle, right? As I crossed the threshold. Smiling, Mr. Facebook Bag looked up and said, Actually, it's the Tesla shuttle. 
I only used to work at Facebook. You're free to get on, though, if you'd like, and we can chat. I burst out laughing and retreated. But Tesla had just launched a new model, and it was tempting. End footnote. While waiting for the bus during the bouts I was living in SF, depending on whatever girlfriend drama was going on, I'd amuse myself by trying to guess which group clustered together belonged to what company. In time, you trained a mental model. The Googlers were older and nerdier looking. You could cheat by looking for the bunch of colored spheres on their infantile corporate IDs, while Facebookers were younger and a bit edgier. Once on board, you'd start the day's worth of email, or code in the case of the engineers, while bouncing around and hopefully missing the traffic snarl that congealed southbound around 9 a.m. Once inside Facebook Landia, which you wouldn't leave for the next 12 hours or so, you'd make a beeline for the cafe and the first of three free meals you'd have on campus. If you were a product manager, you were likely bolting it while checking email in the 15 minutes before your first meeting, your first of anywhere from 6 to 12, plus another 2 to 3 impromptu ones. Your Microsoft calendar, which ruled your life via audio reminders from your corporate iPhone, as well as those of your colleagues, was fought over like a hundred yards of no-man's land during World War I. The moment you would clear a meeting slot on your calendar, someone would likely send you an invite to fill it. There was an internal tool that helped with the ongoing calendar jigsaw puzzle. The joke was that the biggest advantage of being at Facebook was not having to explain why you were on Facebook all day. Aside from putting the product through its paces, much of Facebook's collaborative work was done via Facebook itself. Every product team had an internal Facebook group for the team, perhaps several, one for each subset of shareholders in the product, for example, sales, marketing, and engineering. Footnote. There was an entire internal Facebook in which only employees could ever see posts, likes, or comments. It functioned very much like the Facebook at Work product, basically Facebook as enterprise collaboration software. End footnote. Poopin. This was one of those culture-defining inside Facebook jokes. If you were so foolish as to leave your laptop unlocked or unguarded among that loudish lot, then anyone had full right to open your browser, which had at least two to three tabs open to Facebook, and post a status update involving a mundane gastrointestinal task. Jello, for whatever reason, was the slightly more tasteful alternative. Looking up from your desk, just another generic white surface exactly like Zucks. What greets you? The product teams are clustered around their product and engineering managers. The ads floor, which seems to be forever expanding into other floors and hallways, is a patchwork quilt of these teams. You know the route, like an ant in the pile, to the three or four with whom you collaborate. Senior management sits at one set of desks, close to whoever else was in the ads nomenclatura that millisecond. It changes often. This is your native habitat as a product manager. They say childhood ends when we first seriously realize we're going to die. For a startup, there's a similarly maturing moment, often right at the cusp of expansive success, when the founders realize their creation has left its organizational infancy. Why do Facebook and Twitter acquire piddly little companies like AdGrok, FriendFeed, and Aardvark? We've already discussed how corporate mergers and acquisitions are basically recruitment via other means in the Valley's overheated market for technical talent. But there's another motivation. By hybridizing their corporate DNA with the pluck and daring of the startup entrepreneur, they revitalize their internal cultures and add traits not typically found among their recruitment fodder, that is, smart but obedient engineering grads. 
It's like the intentional mixing of refined European breeds with wild dingoes in Australia that produce the smart and rangy Australian cattle dog. Almost invariably, and there are exceptions, the startup product disappears into the maw of the acquiring company and is never seen again. But those founders and early employees, skilled at creating something out of nothing when armed with very little, bring their technical flair and product chutzpah to a lumbering organization that is already forgetting its pioneering roots. Or such was the theory. While many such acquirees did end up having successful careers at Facebook, those who succeeded either were given incredibly wide latitude by Zuck to do what they wanted, for example the Instagram team, or had to adapt to their new circumstances and rein in the startup wildness a bit. Those who did neither? Well, let's not jump ahead. None of this was clear to me in the beginning. On the contrary, coming in as a successful startup entrepreneur meant you had lots of starting social capital. Everyone treated me like some champion on a victory lap, but inside, I felt like the survivor of a shipwreck, cold, wet, hands shaking, and a red cross blanket thrown over my shoulders, wondering just what the fuck had happened. How I'd gotten from the wild, untethered Adgrok shipwreck in the making to the corporate Elysium of free burgers and mission statements was an ontological puzzle. But the first rule of startups is also true of any fast-paced, competitive workplace like Facebook. Act like you belong there, even if you don't. One morning, all the employees arrived to find a four-by-six-bound red book on their desks. The title was, Facebook was not originally created to be a company, the resounding declaration that Zuck would eventually include in Facebook's IPO documents. Inside was a slickly designed rumination on corporate values, mostly tasteful juxtapositions of typically Facebook office tableau, a passed-out engineer on a couch, inspiring artifacts from Facebook's history, a photo of early Facebook employees gathered at one modest dinner table, and somewhat kitschy stock photos of the inspirational calendar genre, an overwhelming wide-angle night sky. The content was either more storied Facebook lore, that time engineers convinced journalists Facebook was shipping a fax button that would fax your photos, or tastefully typeset excerpts from the gospel according to Facebook. The quick shall inherit the earth. We don't build services to make money. We make money to build services. The penultimate page captured the spirit best. In white sans-serif font, against a stark black background, it read, If we don't create the thing that kills Facebook, someone else will. Embracing change isn't enough. It has to be so hardwired into who we are that even talking about it seems redundant. The Internet is not a friendly place. Things that don't stay relevant don't even get the luxury of leaving ruins. They disappear. Mark that well, FB soldier. In a thousand small ways, the company was forever reminding its people of the cost of failure. Facebook had the death awareness of the person planning on living forever. Death didn't inspire fear, however. Only a reminder of the discipline required to keep decay at bay. I had never seen a company before or since so maniacal in ensuring the perpetuation of its original values. It was like the United States on the 4th of July, every day. Our work is never over. Make it faster. What would you do if you weren't afraid? This journey, 1% finished. Like the naive new recruit, I took those values to heart. And like the new recruit, I'd realize only later that the Facebook reality was rather more complicated. The Barbaric Yawn
To fill the hour, that is happiness. To fill the hour and leave no crevice for a repentance or an approval. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Experience January 2012 Track racing is an exhilarating pursuit. You take your performance car that you irresponsibly street race all the time through busy streets filled with potholes and around turns with bad camber, and you're suddenly on a flawless surface winding through sweeping, perfectly sloped turns with full license to go apeshit. The nature of track racing is that you're flooring either the throttle or the brake at all times, either exploding out of turns or stopping suddenly to make them. No bandwidth spent looking for cops or that slow-driving old lady in an Accord means you are exclusively focused on your vehicle, the track, and the G-forces pulling you sideways. If you hit a flow state, it's one of those transcendent unions of man, machine, and the physical world that take you outside yourself into a point-like state of consciousness. You are all tense sinew and twitching nerve, a beast strapped into a machine with no past, no future, just that one 130-mile-per-hour moment. Add in two dozen other gearhead degenerates going apeshit along with you on the track, and you've got yourself a ten-lap ticket straight to your own mental red line. When you finally pull off the track into the pits, your overheated car will reek of burnt brake and clutch, your damp clothes are glued with sweat to your skin, and you'll remove your driving gloves with shaking hands. The adrenaline crash will hit, and you'll be reminded of the moments after your first fight, or your first real fuck. Then you drive home. Your mental physics have been recalibrated, and so you floor the throttle by default and settle into what seems a comfortable cruising speed of 110 miles per hour. After whooshing past the right lane for a while, you're forced to suddenly brake for some irresponsible dickhead who's doing, oh, is the speedometer lying to me? 80 miles per hour, 10 over the posted speed limit. Then you look around and take stock of your new driving environment. Everything feels incredibly slow. It's like you're crawling. You can't believe this is 80 miles per hour. You're indignant. How can anyone fucking have an accident at this speed? I could basically duct tape my steering wheel in place, fall asleep, and still get home. None of these idiots know how to drive and should lose their licenses, and the speed limit needs to be at least 100 miles per hour. You realize you've been living in a different world for most people for the past few hours, and now you're in a world that moves as slow as molasses. This is what it feels like to go from a startup to a big company. Even Facebook, whose ability to maintain a fast-moving, always-be-shipping culture well into corporate middle age was admirable and unique, was simply a German-style Audubon, not a racetrack. The days of a few engineers going rogue and launching Facebook video despite Zuck's wishes were long gone. Most vehicles moved at the speed limit, lots of trucks hogged the right lane, and a select few drivers traveled at full speed in the left lane, with no speed limit passes given out by Zuck alone, and anyone else who dared race ahead did so at peril to his or her career. A more middling company will feel like an American highway, originally well-constructed, but now beset with a slew of problems stemming from long-neglected repairs and drivers who don't understand the notion of lane discipline. The shit-kicker town car in the left lane doing 45 miles per hour and blocking traffic, the bro with his Supra lowrider and fart can zipping past on the right halfway into the breakdown lane. Trucks using middle lanes to pass despite outpacing each other by all of two miles per hour. When you join Apple or Google from a startup, you're literally and figuratively commuting on the 101 going southbound in the morning. More or less moving, 
but basically one of a pack of indistinguishable vehicles all signaling before you change lanes, respecting the HOV lane, and routing around jackasses. In the worst case, <clears throat> Oracle, your big company is the Paharganja neighborhood of Delhi at rush hour, a nightmarish jumble of rickshaws, taxis, trucks, pedestrians, and cows, all trying to get somewhere, and nobody moving despite the crescendo of horns and voices. As early as a few months into Facebook, once the novelty had worn off, I could feel myself growing bored and frustrated with the speedometer stuck in the middle double digits. Product development in ads was sluggish and curiously hesitant. The targeting team continued trying to squeeze juice out of the dry data lemon, and Gokul kept on riding the ads team mercilessly, while offering nothing in the way of direction. The Facebook cast was unfailingly competent, but not the race car drivers of my previous startup life, and it seemed I was waiting to get somewhere. Given the nature of technology compensation, I actually was. Here's how people get paid in Silicon Valley. Like most employees, I had a vesting calendar that determined the speed and cadence of my equity being awarded. And as with most employees, my equity compensation vested over four years, with one-fourth coming after exactly one year and the 148th coming every financial quarter after that. Your net worth, particularly if you, like me, had most of it in the stock of the company you were at, resembled a stair-step plot of gradual but swiftly accumulating value. Despite the deal drama, I had a boilerplate employment contract, except my numbers were larger due to my acquihire leverage and brinksmanship in playing Gokul against Twitter. Nonetheless, I'd have to patiently wait out my vesting schedule. The joke term for doing so in less spirited companies than Facebook was being a VIP, that is, vesting in peace. My one major oversight was failing to realize that the impatient startup entrepreneur, the guy addicted to the smell of burnt clutch and the engine's throaty roar, was never going to stick around for four years and vest in peace, something the corp dev people who put together my offer surely realized, those bastards. You were really going to spend, at best, two years there, so have that number on your offer or term sheet, and then have it again if it's in the form of stock rather than options, thanks to ass-backward IRS treatment of valley compensation. Doesn't look like such a great deal now, does it? To measure progress, I put a countdown clock app on my MacBook's dashboard, measuring the time until my first vesting, beyond which I already couldn't imagine staying. The clock counted in minutes, hours, and days, and I referred to it often, especially after a particularly challenging meeting that reeked of corporate cant and catatonia. An idle mind is the devil's playground, as the saying goes, so in the meantime I got down to this serious business, as some product managers do, of trying to bang my product marketing manager. PMS, as we'll call her, was composed of alternating Bezier curves from top to bottom. Convex, then concave, and then convex again, in a vertical undulation you couldn't take your eyes off of. Unlike most women at Facebook, or in the Bay Area really, she knew how to dress. Forty-style, form-fitting dresses from neck to knee were her mainstay. Her blonde hair was offset by olive skin, and bright blue eyes shone like headlights from her neotenic face. She had a charming perfectionism around email orthography and usage, despite the generally rushed illiteracy that reigned in Facebook corporate communication. We traded flirtatious barbs around whether CPM was an initialism or an abbreviation, and whether a needlessly flowery formulation of mine, written in response to some insipid corporate conversation, was a metonym or a metaphor. 
Like me, PMS would lose herself in bouts of louche, ethanolic self-destruction that typically ended in some disinhibited act of carnality. A couple of times already, such behavior had involved me, though only at a relatively PG-rated level of barside making out. It was time to close the deal. Friday afternoons at Facebook in those days had a happy hour feel to them. Zuck would do his company-wide Q&A, for which employees could propose or vote on questions beforehand to ask the commander-in-chief. Footnote. The company-wide all-hands meeting on late Friday afternoons is as close as the valley gets to a universal tradition. They're called TGIF at Google, though now held on Thursdays for international time zone reasons, and Tea Time at Twitter, where they feature on-tap kombucha. At last count, they have three different kinds. It's a chance for senior leadership to address the ranks and explain what's going on up the chain, as well as to address public rumors or news circulating in the company, which, if the company is in play at all, will be an ever-present chorus. End footnote. I'd occasionally attend, depending on the winning questions, they were posted in an internal Facebook group, and after would rush the keg of whatever swill they were serving before the 23-year-old hoodie-clad masses got there. The ads crew would drift through at some point, huddling at an outdoor picnic bench if the weather was agreeable. Mark Rabkin, Fiji Simo, then a marketer, eventually a product manager, Brian Boland, and others. The ads cool kids one could actually have a drink with, relatively rare in those days. A particularly boisterous crew at these informal courtyard shenanigans was the ads product marketing team. In ads, but a separate org than Boland's mafia, it was headed by Mike Fox, an easygoing Midwesterner. The team's role in the Facebook construct was interesting. For all of social media's avant-garde pretensions, it still had to wade into places like Bentonville, Arkansas, or Auburn Hills, Michigan, and convince companies that sold or made actual things, like Walmart and Chrysler, respectively, to spend money on Facebook. Making the Facebook sale to the CEO of General Motors was like teaching an Amazonian tribesman how to set a clock radio. Possible so long as you couched it in their language and framed it in whatever quirky mythology they held sacred. Fox, along with his henchmen Doug Frisbee, Dan Tritola, and Galen Burke, were the emissaries to those weary giants of flesh and steel. The Fox crew was always out in force every happy hour. PMS was a frequent co-conspirator in the marketing bash. Well pre-gamed at the picnic tables around the cafe that hosted the Zuck Q&A, the group decamped to continue the mayhem elsewhere. Destination? The Shady Lady Bar, one of the more epic emanations of jerry-rigged Facebook bar culture. It looked like the inside of an Elks Lodge in Des Moines, Iowa, complete with signed celebrity photos from washed-up 70s stars, for example, Burt Reynolds, and a counter decked out in padded vinyl and formica. The bar had been reanimated in Building 10 after the move from California Avenue. Building 10 was at the end of the curved loop of buildings that formed the campus. It served as the official entrance and reception to Facebook, as well as housing random teams like ops or legal. Reception lobby plus non-engineers meant that at 7 p.m. on a Friday, it was more desolate than the Mojave. The Fox gang plus PMS were nicely blitzed by this point, and we took over the space. Hoping to find something other than the mass-market beer served at Q&A, I opened the fridge and found myself staring at an unopened bottle of Thunderbird. The bum wine par excellence. By God, I'd never even seen one, just heard of it. Everything else was total rotgut as well. The one working tap seemed to pour something reminiscent of Coors Light. This bar might have been a piece of conceptual art rather than a functioning watering hole. 
The real intoxicant here, though, was PMS in a fitted dress. Through wiles I can't recall now, I somehow induced her to leave the circus for the surrounding rows of abandoned desks. Besotted prurience was easily conjured again, and suddenly privacy was at a premium. Without losing the full-body press, I reached out and swung open a mysterious door embedded in a wall a couple of yards away. It was a utility closet filled with cleaning supplies and the detritus of Facebook life, propaganda posters, geek toys, and packing boxes. Gently hauling us both inside, I closed the door, and the combat continued. As PMS stood a head and a half shorter than me, this required some contortions. The fact it was pitch black meant we lost any sense of equilibrium, and I pressed an arm against the left side wall for balance. The battle of the bra clasp was going on behind her back, a vicious winner-take-all contest, a two-person siege of Leningrad. PMS wasn't resisting, but Victoria's Secret was. My one-handed bra opening skills were decidedly rusty. It didn't help that I felt something wrapped around my foot, like an extension cord or perhaps a cardboard box. She tasted sweet with a bit of biscuitness from the happy hour beer. She was a beer hound too. One more wire loop sticking. Get off now. Something clattered as I partially lost my balance and took my weight off that foot. Victory was mine. The bra had given way. Time to storm the parliament building with a face-first dive into her cleavage. The darkness and her proximity made it more of a headbutt. I went forehead-first into her sternum, and we both went slightly off balance, her leaning back and against the wall, me stooping. I was definitely stepping inside either a bucket or a cardboard box. If I tried to take a step, cartoon physics would surely take over, and I'd slip as if in a friction-free universe. I'd launch myself through the door for the entire ads marketing team to see, complete with action lines and sound effects, not to mention a partially bare-breasted product marketing manager. I held my ground rather than risking a move. The engine of mutual lust was revving, but I didn't feel it was quite revved high enough to attempt carnal union. A Facebook broom closet boink would have been well beyond the pale even for me. Matters simmered rather than boiled over. Erotic breaks applied, I cracked the door ajar. The coast was clear. Being careful to put my weight on the unencumbered foot, I exited first, followed by PMS a few seconds later. Back at the lady, all of ten steps away, we'd not been missed, and rejoined the fray without any visible eyebrows being raised. Just another Facebook Friday, I looked at PMS, and her feline eyes projected warmth and conspiratorial glee. After the happy hour momentum at the shady lady wound down, we abandoned the marketing crew and headed back to the ads area, strolling down the recently completed courtyard and stopping at the odd bench or wall to continue our necking. This was ill-advised from the professional perspective, but fortunately, at 10 p.m. on a Friday, even Facebook was on the empty side, and this had no repercussions, beyond some gossip on the ads team. Normally, such a scene, at that hour and or state of sobriety, would have taken place while stumbling down Valencia Street in the mission, and would have had a far more kinetic conclusion. But instead, we both went back to our desks like the sane, hard-working professionals we were. Even on the extracurricular front, Facebook was no racetrack.